Hello and thank you for listening to this Youth Mental Health Podcast with the Northern Trust. My name is James Nelson. I'm a psychiatrist in the Trust and I'm very pleased to be joined today by my colleague Carmel. Carmel, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, yes, my name is Carmel Millen and I am an eating disorder practitioner within the Northern Trust. And and again, you, you haven't mentioned that you're the team lead for that team. Uh, further humility uh, after our last podcast uh, and we're very glad to have you joining us today, Carmel, to talk about um, managing meals tips for parents and carers um so I, I suppose we're building off our last podcast karma when you helpfully gave us an introduction to eating disorders to help a, a parent or a carer think in a little bit more detail about that and today we're wanting to be quite specific we're wanting to think about the dinner table the the home environment and a young person who's underweight with an eating disorder and how meal times go for them uh and, and maybe to set the scene for that, Carmel, uh, it would help to just describe a little bit for our listeners what what might that situation be like? So almost a freeze frame of a family sitting down, underweight, eating disordered young person, the dinner is set down, hit the pause button. What What's going on in that moment and what, what can be experienced by everyone? If you want to just sketch that a little bit for us, Carmel, to start. Well, I think... What's really important to say here is that we don't, what we know is that when a young person and a family present to us, the difficulties around managing meals don't really start when the meal is set down on the table. Um, It's something that parents might have worried about all day, child might have worried about all day for many days prior to even that meal being set down in front of them. Um, And we might have by the time we even get involved, we might have a family or a young person who's exhausted by this or who has had repeated anxiety about this or repeated negative experience about managing meals. Um, and why that is, is, is exactly what you're saying, James, because it can be really, really difficult. You, you have a young person there who, at this stage, if you're known to our service, who may have already been diagnosed with an eating disorder or maybe about to be or maybe may have a meal plan in place um, and you may have a young person or a family member in front of you who is straightforward refusing their meal. So you may have a young person who is straightforward refusing their meals or you may have someone who is demonstrating incredible anxiety around meal times, or trying to manage that meal times in a way that keeps them as safe as possible from a really overwhelming thought about their weight or their shape or, or what mealtimes are about. So you may have a real argumentative experience um, and usually that's not always one-sided. Okay, so it may be the young person or the person with an eating disorder arguing about what the meal might look like or what it should be even prior to the meal being set down in front of them. Um, and it may be then the supporter of that meal or the parent or caregiver arguing back about what actually that meal should be. So it's typically not always a one-sided argument. I think we have to be realistic that it's usually something that's quite ongoing. You may have subtle things like hiding food, smearing of food, dropping food, or just general stalling of food or avoidance of food. Sometimes I, I ask, is there... And all of a sudden, a love for the family pet to be at the dinner table mm. because you may find that the dog is, is sitting around the table a lot more often than they used to be. And dogs are really comforting and they're really lovely and they're lovely to stroke, but they're obviously 
um, really, really useful if you're trying to get rid of a piece of chicken really fast and the dog will be super happy to sit beside you if that's happening too. You may find that it's a really upsetting time for person with an eating disorder and care for an eating disorder. So I want to talk about in this in this episode, I want to talk about how managing meals can be really, really difficult for the person who's trying to manage the meal. But we need to remember that who is trying to manage the meal, it is, it is the person who finds it difficult to eat it. But it's also the person trying to give that support as well. It's a really, really difficult time. We may find crying, we may find distress, um, and you may find then a supporter of that being incredibly emotionally exhausted. And I suppose if we think about ways of stalling food intake, arguments is one of the best ways, isn't it? And, you know, you may have, it's a great distraction technique. Um, when you're emotionally exhausted, you're really, really tempted to say, right, that's enough. That's, that's fine. Leave it then. Some people would describe it as a battleground. And that's, I think that's a really fair use of the word because it can become and feel like a battleground. And like I said at the start, it's not about just when that meal is placed in front of you. It's about all the thoughts that both the supporter and the young person has prior to that meal even being set down in front of them. Yes, Carmel, you're describing that very vividly, Carmel, and I'm almost feeling a bit overwhelmed listening to it, that there's so many strands to the mealtime. There's the build-up, there's tension all round, there's arguing maybe, and maybe arguing is a distraction-stalling tactic. Um, there's distress and then I suppose no parent in the world is perfect Uh, so maybe there's times when a parent gets a bit short-tempered or whatever and that could even then be used as more distraction by the young person with eating disorder and that this is a this isn't a one-off event this is part of the cycle of daily family life so I think already we're setting the scene that this is hard and in an ongoing way yeah, I think that's really fair to say. I think because this is not just daily, because this is, you know, numerous times daily, it is exhausting and it is really, really tiring. And typically when we are asking young people known to our service to follow a meal plan or to establish a regular pattern of eating, we are talking about regular in the form of usually six times a day. So you'll have your breakfast and then your snack and then a lunchtime and then a snack, and then a dinner, and then an evening supper. So this is something that is ongoing more than once daily. And if you think about, you know, a really stressful environment or an argument or something that you're not getting on with your parent or caregiver or child about, to have to tackle that six times a day can feel overwhelming. So it's it's no surprise that, you know, you're recognising that this is overwhelming, James, yeah. Mm. And we've talked before about eating disorders being, you know, almost in a sense all-consuming and, and, and can overtake almost the mind of a young person at times of great distress. And, and when we just think through what you've just said, we can logically see why this can sort of in some ways take over family life. Because if we're putting that battleground down multiple times in a day, yeah, we can see how it affects everyone at home. And today we're, we're really quite focused on strategies and practical tips for a parent or carer as they go into this tense encounter frequently just leading into that Carmel what general tips have we got so what general advice about how how meals can go general principles about staying calm about the environment what what tips like that might we start with 
there's quite a lot of tips that we can go into. Um, and again, at the risk of giving too many tips and, and becoming overwhelming in the, in the opposite way, the absolute basics to remember is your boundaries and your planning. So if we think about the anxiety that a young person has around mealtimes, I mean, we may have the young person experiencing an eating disorder thought and we refer to it before as like a voice because we try to externalize it's not in a psychotic way we're trying to externalize this thought as an illness-based thought and the child might the child is absolutely not demonstrating behaviors at mealtimes to be difficult to be bold but they may be trying to make mealtimes unachievable so and, and why they're doing that is, is usually because anxiety around mealtimes is quite high and they need to find ways that's going to make that mealtime manageable for them. Like I'm saying about the cutting, cutting up food into small pieces or hiding the food or trying to stall or become argumentative and things. So the absolute basics that we try to remind everybody about is, is to be really boundaried. So how to do that? And the first and foremost is, is to time your meals. For meals, we recommend 30 minutes and for snacks, we recommend 15 and not a minute more. And there's really three reasons for that. So the first reason is because it's totally normal to be able to eat a main meal within 30 minutes and totally normal to be able to eat a snack within 15 minutes. And if we think about why we're trying to establish a regular eating, we're trying to normalize what's normal for us and what would have been normal in the past. Second reason is because as we've already talked about, this can be something that is emotionally draining for everybody involved. And really half an hour of distress or arguments or that increased anxiety is enough. And if, if you're prolonging that, you're prolonging that distress and anxiety as well. We will have young people and families present to us and will take an hour to an hour and a half to two hours to try and achieve their meal before they come. And of course they're doing that because they're finding that that's worked for them. But actually, in hindsight, what that's done is that really prolongs what's normal eating. It really prolongs disordered eating and it prolongs meals. So that's the third reason. Meals then tend to all run into each other. And you might find then by the end of the day, you have successfully managed to have two or three meals, but it's taken all day and it's been really, really exhausting and draining. So if you were trying to cut that down to half an hour for your main meals, 15 minutes for your snacks, you're talking about something that's going to be achievable. You're over time, not straight away. And I want to make this point. None of these is about finding what works straight away. But if you try and stick to that time limit, you're going to make it more achievable to achieve, say, the six, six times and more achievable to establish a regular pattern of eating that's normal for you at your age and stage of development and what would have been normal for the family prior to this illness. So something else that we need to think about is how we actually plan for that. And that's part of setting boundaries as well. So we think about, you know, what the content of each meal should be. This should be agreed long before a meal time. And typically that will be agreed in session. And, and all of the you know, likes and dislikes should have been taken into consideration. And the reason that we do that away from meal time, away from grocery shopping, is because it needs to be done in a calm way whenever eating disorder hasn't got as much of an opportunity to get stuck in and try to negotiate and change things to suit an eating disorder or to suit a diet or a plan that's going to influence weight and shape and, and feed into that preoccupation. So we will recommend that you will think about what does normal meal planning look like for your family prior to the illness 
Um, is it that everybody sits down together? Is it what are your times for your meal time like? Do they suit your family? So managing meals can be, as we've said, really, really difficult and exhausting. So let's try and be realistic about when that's going to work for you guys as a family who's trying to engage in a treatment, but also as a family who's trying to get back into what's normal for you guys. So if granny or auntie so-and-so pops around every evening at this time, that might not be the best time for a dinner. So we might have to alter our times and agree our times to sit that. Think about where does everybody sit? Does everybody sit at the table? Um, who with? Again, is it normal for all the siblings to sit together? Is it normal for some to be in bedrooms, etc.? And just to jump in there, Carmel, you're talking about thinking back to what family meals would have been like before. And are you suggesting then that that's kind of where families try to keep it? So, or, or, or are you suggesting it, it's different in general structure? No, I totally suggest that we try and get the whole goal is to try and get back to what's normal for this child and normal for this family. One of the basic principles for keeping this achievable, that once it's planned and once it's agreed, that there's no changes and no negotiations to that. We keep it regular for a reason. So, for example, we'll have parents or families coming into us who will say um, they didn't have their snack. So what we've done is we've doubled up on our afternoon snack instead of, you know, we've let her miss her after her morning snack, but we've doubled up on the afternoon snack. We will say, no, please don't do that. And the reason that we do that is because we're trying to establish a regular pattern of eating. What we're trying to do is we're trying to help reboot those regular hunger cues. And we're trying to, um, aside from keeping blood sugar stable and, and trying to get biochemistry working back in, in sync again, which we know can have a massive impact on the child's mood as well. What we're trying to do is eventually build up confidence that the child will start to feel hungry again and the child will start to trust their own hunger cues which will take some time and the more predictable we can be about meal times the more this child will get used to it and the more we're going to decrease that fear around food the more we'll get used to a regular pattern of eating which is what we're trying to achieve overall. Yes Carmel so we've covered quite a bit already there you've helpfully said at the start this isn't just a, a young person being bold so to speak this is part of an eating illness if they're finding mealtimes very distressing and, 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 and in some ways it's, it can be difficult for parents as a result. We're talking about regularity, predictability, keeping it boundary at the times you've got so that it doesn't consume the whole day. I'm just wondering about some other practical issues that parents might and carers might be wondering about here. Do you have any, any firm view on, do you have a TV on or not? to sort of distract or, or do you make it really intense and the parent kind of sits down and you're, right, you're sort of eyeballing the young person across the table and it's all, you know, what about stuff like that? Helpful or not? What we're talking about is normal eating. So what is normal again? So is it normal for a parent or a supporter to, and I'm saying supporter, but is it normal for a parent or a friend to sit beside someone who is eating and not eat? No. Somebody else will typically have a cup of tea and a biscuit or a coffee. So we do ask our parents or supporters to sit down and eat with mm. their child. And because that, again, is just normal. And it's told, it, it role models that it's normal to eat regularly. It's OK to eat regularly. A lot of our young people will argue and say that they're not hungry and they may not be hungry because they haven't got those that that the irregular patterns of eating may have been well established and they may not have the hunger cue 
or they may feel particularly bloated after trying to eat regularly again. But it is normal to be snacking and grazing throughout the day. And that's we will ask a parent to sit down and, and eat with them. To answer your question about is it okay to have the TV on in the background? Yeah, that's okay if that's what's normal in your house. Is it normal to have the radio on? Yeah. Is it normal to have conversation? Yeah. What you might find is that subtly over time, eating disorder may have completely manipulated what's normal for you in your house. And that's when you will have the arguments come in or the stalling or, like I said before at the start, you may have had weeks or months of trying to manage this on your own before you've accessed service and now mealtime is now all of a sudden a really intense time. And, and I want to jump in with more questions here because what you're saying is very interesting and it's also making me, me think more questions. So yes, totally get it. A parent sitting down and eating with them or a carer is a normal thing to do. So of course that makes sense to do like that. But I'm even then wondering about conversation because probably everyone around the table is kind of fixated on the food and are you eating it and maybe how many calories are in and all that. But is it actually helpful if a parent or carer tries to model what would normally happen? Like what happened in your day to day or did what about sport or music or, or is that a good topic for conversation or do you try and keep the focus all on food and eating and you're doing well? And do you know what I'm asking, Carmel? Yeah. And again, this is where communication is really important because what works for one won't work for everybody else. If you have, if you're at the start of your journey and you have your child who is incredibly distressed about the meal that's in front of them, what we will, we would love to get to the stage where you're happy to engage in chit chat conversations about your day. But you may have, you may be in a situation where your child's day has been completely interrupted with eating disorder, where the day has been, you know, suddenly they're maybe not attending school, they're not seeing their peers. Um, they found themselves quite withdrawn and isolated so it might be actually really difficult to come up with conversations but you also might have a child who's not even able to engage in that conversation so at the start we talk about conversation being quite directive and not suggestive so if you have a young person in front of you who is simply just refusing or sitting there um, presenting is quite vacant we will say it's really, really important to be directive. And by directive, I mean giving instruction. So this is where you feel where certainly when I started this post, I felt like it was nearly a harsh approach where you were telling somebody what to do instead of working with them. But what I found very quickly was if I used language like, do you want to pick up your fork? I got a very, very polite, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. So my suggestion it was never going to work because the child doesn't want to pick up their fork. And you're leaving that a choice, a choice that that child isn't able to make. So when we say about being directive, we're saying to give really, really clear, direct cues. OK, it's time to pick up your fork. Cut up your chicken, take a bit of your chicken, bring your fork to your mouth, open your mouth, put it in your mouth. It's time to chew. That's enough chews. Now it's time to swallow. But now you can have a sip of water and so on. So you might find that at the start, you are having to be as directive as that. Um, you might also have to be directive in terms of just naming what you see. Um, if you see food being sort of pushed around the plate or peas being sort of accidentally pushed onto the floor, you know, it might be about just saying, look, I, I can see that this is really difficult for you, but this needs to be done. We've planned and agreed. Um, we've only 20 minutes left, we've only 15 minutes left, let's make this work and we'll talk about it afterwards. 
so at the start, yeah, you may find that actually there's no opportunity to engage mm. in what's, you know, normal chit chat. But over time, what we find is that directive use of conversation should, you know, gradually decrease. Um, you might find that you only have to do it at the start. And then, you know, a week or two later, you might not have to use any direction at all. It might just automatically happen. Mm. And I think I know the answer to this one already, but in terms of sort of tone and stuff, you aim to keep calm. You, th- this isn't the time to kind of get really tense. You're trying to keep it firm, directive, but measured. Is that is that right, Carmel? Very, very much so. So this is, nobody can blame anybody for getting really emotionally drained at this. It is a really hard thing. And if we're talking, even that 15 minutes for a snack, 15 minutes for a snack, if you're being as directive as that, can be really, really intense. And we don't want that intensity to last forever. Nobody does. It's too hard. And that comes back to, you know, why it's really important to boundary the time. So it's really important to boundary that time because, you know, it won't last forever. You'll cut it off. And then what we suggest is that actually you don't spend too long after the meal discussing the meal or you don't spend time during the meal discussing how hard. You can absolutely comment and say, look, we know this is hard, but this is what has to be done. And that's it. Don't draw the line. Your, your meal times aren't supposed to be therapeutic sessions. Your meal times aren't supposed to, you know, tackle any of that or make it critical or it can be very, very easy to, you know, to feel, oh, this is such a waste. I've just didn't prepared this and you're not having it and, and please do it for me. That's just not the right time to go into those conversations. Mm. Okay, that's helpful. A, a couple of, of other quick practical queries for me, Carmel. I'm, I, I'm assuming the parent stays with them the whole time or the carer. So you don't sort of nip out to the to do something for a few minutes, uh, you, you kind of got to be there the whole time. That's stating the obvious, isn't it? It is. And I suppose that's, you're saying stating the obvious. Um, it is stating the obvious. It's something that can actually be quite hard to do because when we talk about behaviours within meals, it's sometimes it's sometimes what a young person will request. I'll eat it if you don't look at me. I'll eat it if you don't watch me. I can't do this when people are staring at me. Mm. And that's totally fair enough. And that's why I'm saying we don't want that intensity or that direction to be you know, there all the time. We want that to be totally phased out. You will know from sitting with your child when they're getting a bit easier, you will know, I didn't actually have to use that cue or prompt today um, or this meal. And that's, it's really important to try and regain a bit of insight into when that starts to change, which can be hard. It can be really hard, but you're only going to have that insight if you're able to stay calm yourself. Thanks, Carmel. And again, You've probably answered this already, but I assume you don't bring consequences into this in the way that a parent might traditionally, especially with a younger child, say, right, if you're not going to finish your dinner, you're not going out with your friends. Or if you're not going to finish your dinner, you're not getting £10 tomorrow to spend. I assume that's not an appropriate way to approach this, Carmel. It's it's not. We have some parents who do and we have some, we, we see why. Um, but what I will say is... It, Again, back to this child not being bold, you will very quickly run out of consequences if this is a genuinely mm, illness related okay. and you're trying to do this six times okay. a day. And okay, so in short, it's not going to work. It's not going to work really, long I think is what you're yeah, saying. No. Yeah, okay, okay. That's and helpful. the flip side of that as well, James, is some of our young people find praise really difficult too. So if you are sitting at meal support, um, it might be really tempting to say, good, well done. Um, that's actually yes. really difficult to hear for a young person when they're doing that. Um, and it's back to what we, we talked about in the original podcast, because when you're saying good, 
you are suggesting that that child has made the choice to do it whenever no we're not making a suggestion we are being directive so we are able to absorb the blame and again if you think about how an eating disorder thought will process this so we are we as practitioners and supporters are asking to absorb that blame and the responsibility at the start only at the start because again it may be too early for that child or young person or or whoever with an eating disorder to recognize yes i am doing this because that might absorb some guilt and responsibility we do want to get there but at the start that's not always achievable for that young person so instead of saying good well done uh, which might even infer, oh, you're going to start putting mm-hmm. on weight and could even bring more panic. Uh, I th- probably something a bit more factual, like that's it complete. Now we're off to do something else. So we're trying not to comment and value in front of them too Perfect. much. What, you, what you're trying to do is, yep, you're following the rules. You're sticking to the plan. I, I'm, it's great. I'm going to be able to give this a tick at the end. Um, I'm saying tick at the end because some of our meal plans have ticks at the end where, where we're able to keep okay. track about what's happening. But... In short, yes, you're able to say, yeah, you're doing what you have to do. Okay, okay. And 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 just jumping back briefly to the 30-minute thing, you, you've, again, you've probably answered this, but if you get to 30 minutes and the meal is half eaten, that's the end of it. You don't try and spill it on longer. And you, you, you've, you've already said, don't add it on to the next thing. You just sort of draw the line under that meal end of and move on. Isn't that right? Yes, that, that is yeah, right. Yeah. And... Just in terms of a practical thing about even seating arrangements, this feels like some sort of quick fire quiz we're doing here. But in terms of seating, uh, you know, a normal family we've talked about, you know, what was a normal family may look like? There might be people thinking, well, yes, there's three, four, five, six of us at home, whatever. And normally we would all sit. But actually mealtimes are so difficult with our eating disorder young person right now. It feels quite awkward to do this as part of the family meal and therefore we're doing this at a slightly separate time with just one parent because that's easier to manage. I'm guessing, certainly in the early stages, Carmel, is that is that okay to do it like that, do you think? Or any comment on that dilemma? That is a dilemma because what we will say is try and get that as normal as possible. But what we do know is that if that distress and that fear and that anxiety is you know, argumentative, it can disrupt family life even more. And you might have siblings sitting there and you might think, I want to protect them from that. What we'll say is a lot of families, you know, nowadays with school and routines and things find that the only meal that they're actually together for anyway is dinner time um, or supper time or breakfast time. So you have got opportunity throughout that day, you know, to manage the rest of the meals and the rest of the snacks to, to sit down privately. We would encourage you to try dinner time, even as that one meal where everybody's there just to try and normalize it. You may find that it's at that meal that you try not to use the prompts and you just see what happens and you have conversation with the family and you have the TV on and you have things as normal as possible or a gripe about school life or or a chance to chat about who's driving who to whatever Mm -hmm. activity they have on that weekend. Well, we've covered a lot there in terms of general tips and practical advice for approaching this. I'm wondering then, Carmel, are there any specific situations you might want to cover um, in a bit more detail? So maybe if we took the scenario first where um, someone just flat out refuses to do anything. So they're sitting at the table and there's maybe no easy answer to this on a podcast, but you know they're sitting there, the meal's in front of them, 
the parent or carer is doing all the right things they're being directive supportive clear and the young person's just no not doing it um i guess that's then to be picked up in sessions with an eating disorder team and thought about and and but in the moment is is there anything more that a parent can do other than just stick to what we've already discussed in the moment and i've been there as a supporter but as a practitioner not as a parent in the moment that is that can feel really soul destroying that can feel like you are being defeated massively Hmm. um but in the moment short answer no what we are asking you to do is be as predictable as possible so what the eating disorder is trying to do in that moment is make achieving that meal impossible so they're trying to argue with you um prove that nothing that you do is going to change what we ask you to do is we ask you to still be predictable that will believe it or not over time bring anxieties down because the child will know what to expect of you so if they even and what we will say is this will not change fast it will not change really really quick it will take some time it will take some practice um, and being predictable is how we can make this a bit more achievable. So say your young person has absolutely refused the same snack or the same lunch five times in a row, six times in a row. Still prepare that meal or that snack. Still put okay. that down. Um, don't be put off by the fact that what's the point in me standing here doing this whenever they're going to refuse it or um, the dog's going to get it anyway or whatever. Be predictable. You're following the plan and you're setting those consistent boundaries. And what we do tend to see is that over time, the young person will start to engage with that consistently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then maybe just one or two other situations that might arise, Karma. What if it gets very emotional for a young person? So they get really upset, really tearful. Um, they maybe even start talking very emotionally to a parent, you know, and maybe even might be a bit hurtful. You hate me, you're trying to make me fat, whatever it might be. Is it good for a parent or carer to try and engage in that and say, well, no, we care about you? and Or, or, or do you only do that a little bit and try and keep it firm, measured, clear, directive? How engaged do you get in the emotional kind of reassurance? I think if you have, if your child is starting to speak to you like that in that way I think what's you know if that's not normal for your child prior to illness that is really probably the illness trying to talk to you and distract you and again it's not about engaging or trying to rationalize that because you simply will not if that is the illness you know being irrational there's no point in engaging in that what we would suggest that you do is acknowledge this is really hard I can see this is really hard don't be afraid to boundary the way that you would as a parent any other time though and that doesn't mean that you stop the meal and, and you think about consequences but you can go back to it again later at a time if it crosses a line completely and you think no this is not illness related you can go back to that another time in a calm way you can do it in support of the sessions and you can say look this is you know we need to think of a different way to approach this but um, more often than not, if this is happening at mealtimes, this is illness related and it's a method to avoid. Okay, that's helpful. And and maybe one other tricky scenario I can think of. What if the young person doesn't even come into the room? Like, they're like, yes, dinner's on the table. You're 30 minutes to starting now. And they're just not there. 
and you call them and they're still not there and they make it very clear they aren't coming i guess this goes back to what you're saying about keep doing it keep being predictable and and bring that back to sessions with your eating disorder clinician is that right spot on yeah spot on we wouldn't be recommending anything different so we wouldn't be recommending a change in meal plan we wouldn't tell you to try it any other way we would say continue to be predictable continue to prepare the meals all these scenarios that you've said james as well they do happen yeah, they're not, you know, they're not just scenario based things that you've come up with. They've, they've happened many a time. There's a lot of young people going through my head that do this um, and a lot of parents who have been through this. But thankfully, there's a lot of parents who have been through this that aren't going through this anymore. Yes. Because by being predictable, the anxiety has come down. Um, eventually, the young person in the eating disorder has learned, actually, this isn't going to change. I'm going to have to start playing ball. And maybe if I start to... Um, contribute to this treatment and be part of this treatment then I can find a way that makes it work for everybody. Thanks Carmel and it is interesting that the response to most of those scenarios is the same thing which in a way is reassuring um, uh, and um, easy to know in a sense what to do but as, as we've said already emotionally draining and, and challenging to, to, to keep implementing it. Um, I know you wanted to mention a bit about what happens directly after a meal uh, and that that's actually really important and potentially something that we could all overlook. Do you want to unpack that a bit for us, Carmel? Yeah, so we do tend to advise to sit with the young person or the child for the duration of the meal. And like I've said, that can be for 30 minutes or that can be for 15 minutes. But, you know, meal times can be difficult. But I think what is very easy to overlook is about what happens after the meal time. So, we will often suggest to um, the supporter to sit with the young person for 30 minutes after the meal. Typically that can be thought of just in case the child has an urge to vomit or um, but actually what we find is that that meal, if completed or if not completed, can sometimes be quite anxiety provoking. Um, and what you may see after that meal is anxiety going up or a real surge of energy or what we might describe as an urge so an urge to move an urge to exercise um an urge for you know to become quite overwhelmed emotionally um and it's not about allowing time after the meal to sit down and have a therapeutic session like i'm saying but it's about that might be your precious time to actually just anchor yourself as a supporter because 30 minutes has been quite difficult so it might be about self-care for you but it might be about self-care for who you're supporting as well. So we might suggest um, creating a bit of a timetable um, in session, out of session, on the way to session, a time that your family is calm, but a, a timetable of things that you like to do with each other or things that is nice and relaxing. So for so young people, we have um, you know timetables of board games, of um, self-care, face masks, skin masks, um, doing nails, doing board, uh, fairly said board games, but little crafty games, um, listening to music, watching a particular episode or a box set, um, anything that you as a family or that child has enjoyed as a means of self-care, you mm. don't, and this is important as well, you don't have to do it with the child. So it can be set, you know, the child might need 30 minutes of space so you could sit on the other side of the room, let the child do their craft and you do something for you as well. It is in the same 
room it's important because there's some one element of this is to ensure that there's not lots of exercise or self-induced vomiting happening yeah okay but it doesn't have to be emotionally intense on the same task just to broaden the conversation a little bit i'm wondering about siblings and i'm wondering about you know other family members maybe extended family members um where do they come in here? Because we, we've talked already about this being a, a, an illness that affects the whole family. Um, I, I'm guessing that you wouldn't be encouraging siblings to kind of get involved in the the direction, you know, so the older sister doesn't lean across and say, look, listen to mum, you need to eat that. You, uh, have we any advice on that whole area? It's It seems a tricky one. It's a huge area. Um, I think it's probably unrealistic to think that your sibling or your other children aren't aware of what's going on. Um, that's the hope of a lot of parents that come through our door. We'll try and keep, um, we'll try and keep them out of this. They don't need to know about this. The fact of the matter is, they're going to ha- have some sort of idea that this is going on, and we would say, yeah, involve them to an, only to the extent where they know that there's a plan in place. So involve them so that they know we're working on this. Um, you're not expecting a sibling to be a caregiver or a therapist or to be directive in any way, shape or form. A sibling should be in line with the brother and sister. If if a sibling is feeling particularly out of control or helpless or starting to demonstrate a bit of anxiety or worry about what's going on, you can help them or you can ask them to be part of the timetabling of what to mm. do after, for example. And you don't need to phrase it like that, but you can give them a role to do of, right, you're going to get to choose, Mm -hmm. you know, three things that we can do after this. We're going to make after dinner really nice. So you're getting to choose that. And then um, your eating disorder young person might be able to choose the one out of the three that the sibling has chosen. And I suppose I'm wondering, Carmel, that in a family, it's quite possible that a huge amount of focus might be on the eating disorder and the young person with the eating disorder. And it is really quite possible that a, another sibling or siblings might feel slightly forgotten about um so i suppose that's probably just worth mentioning and encouraging parents to in the midst of all the huge busyness around this to be mindful of of that risk i suppose is that is that fair enough Carmel? do you think oh yeah i think so i think it will have parents who are really overly mindful of this as well and i think what we'll do you know, going back to analogies that were used in the initial podcast, would you feel this guilty if your child had a broken arm in front of you or had epilepsy? It's This is illness related. It is natural that the treatment is going to take away some of your time for everybody else. Um, and, you know, it is useful then to bring in those grannies and grandas and uncles who feel maybe a bit helpless or put out. Um you know they they can have a really clear role there with the other siblings just in the interim until you get yourself back up and running or you can bring them along um, to session to learn a bit about how to support your young person so that they could maybe take on a supper or a dinner time or a snack which will give you time then to focus on your other children that's really helpful and balanced i think so that parents are aware of that potential the other children might feel a bit left out but also they shouldn't beat themselves up about it because it's understandable that for a, a season, some of the more of the focus has to be on where the eating disorder is. Um, yeah, I really like that word that you yeah. used there, a season. 
because it doesn't last forever. This stage doesn't last forever. And it feels like it does. And it, because it because it's no quick fix overnight, it can feel like you're not getting anywhere very quick. But this really mm. doesn't last forever. And, and and that leads us in maybe to our, 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 our final question here, Carmel, really um, in concluding. I'm just wondering how things go with meal times and and um, managing meal times as recovery happens. Like, is there a general a general pattern you see? So, a young person is physically getting weight restored; their their weight's gradually going up. Um, outwardly, they're they're improving. Um, I'm kind of wondering what what could a parent be hoping for about this battleground of a meal time? Does it generally gradually get easier as weight goes on or, or, or maybe it's very variable for everybody? Yes, this will be variable for everybody. Um, but what we will tend to hope to see is that um, it doesn't become or it isn't as much of a battleground anymore. So we'll tend with that predictability and that consistency. What we're hoping is that anxiety will come down. Your child will know what to expect of you and of the meal plan, um, you will tend to have to use less prompts because the child and knows what to expect um, and that anxiety around meal times might be a bit less. Um, what we're trying to gauge here is, again, normalising what's normal eating patterns for you before illness. Um, and we're trying to build up our confidence and the child's confidence in what's healthy and, and trusting yes carmel so in some ways it again. might be a bit different perhaps for everybody but the general direction is as someone recovers it may require less very active input from a parent or carer in the long term it'll get less difficult and the end point you're saying we're aiming at is when meal times kind of start to feel like they used two years ago before eating disorder came along yeah okay yeah yeah and i think to recap what i'm saying is at the start what we are acting as is that permission slip to eat we're we're absorbing that responsibility what we're doing about that is that we are role modeling we're eating with them we are setting boundaries we are trying to promote what's normal prior to illness we're trying to engage our child in communication as directive not suggestive um and really just trying to be a really calm, supportive influence along the way. Acknowledging that this will not get easy straight away. Yeah. Carmel, thank you. Thank time. you for all that insight you shared and 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 the the really practical tips of how a parent or care can approach this really quite challenging situation. So thank you for all of that. Thank you to you also, our listeners. Uh, we've embedded within the text of the podcast a short survey. And uh, we'd really welcome your feedback on that survey and any ideas you've got for future episodes you'd like us to, to cover. And we hope you find today's podcast helpful. Mm-hmm.